Hey, Fieldstone, Justin here. Obviously, we are not with you this morning. We had a little bit of a last-minute change of plans for our family. Uh, if you don't know, my dad is also a pastor and has been for many years, and today, at his church up in Ortonville, he is preaching for the last time, and this will be his last day of pastoral ministry after 47 years. And so uh, we as a family decided to run up and be a part of that. I personally, we, we were sitting around the office a few weeks ago and, um, and I was telling Joe that yeah, I think, I think I'll, just, I'll just run up for lunch after. Like, I, I'll, I'll just skip it and, and, and be at Fieldstone. And he, he kind of sits back in his way and goes, are you stupid? And I thought, no, yes. <laughs> and so that was his way of saying, yes, you're going, we'll figure it out. And so that's where we are, and, and we're excited to be a part of it and, and to be able to celebrate him. But for you guys, obviously, this uh, creates a little bit of an unplanned break in our Peter series that we're being in. We'll, we'll pick that up again next week. But today, I just want to uh, introduce a friend of mine. His name is Adam Mashney. He and I go back a number of years, all the way to college, actually. We, we had a class together called The Matrix and Christianity, by far the most amazing elective in college history. Uh, and so we've got some of those fun memories. But Adam currently serves as the high school pastor at Oak Point Church in Novi. Does a great job up there. Uh, has a huge heart for students, huge heart for the local church. And we're excited that he was able to jump in this week. So if you would do me a favor as he comes, welcome my friend, Adam Mashney. Hello, hello. We signed up for that college class called The Matrix and Christianity because we thought it was just watching The Matrix Trilogy. And we're like, yeah, of course we would do that. Um, and it turns out there were books that we had to read. And I was like, who knew there were books about The Matrix? But there are. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we did great in that class, actually, um, now that I think about it. But I am super glad to be here. Um, truly, it's an honor every time to come to Fieldstone. I love Justin. Love Kathy, love their kids. Megan and I, my wife's down in the front row. Our two kids are uh, probably wreaking havoc in the kids' ministry. We got a four-year-old named Caleb and a one-and-a-half-year-old named Eliana. And we just love coming here, supporting you guys, and uh, it's just a joy. The text that we're looking at today is found in Matthew chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you could just turn there now. We'll get there in just a minute. But it has to do with this idea of belief. Belief is an interesting thing. It's a powerful force if you think about it. Um, we're not going to talk all the details about belief. There's much to talk about when it comes to belief. We're not going to hit it all. What we are going to talk about it. And belief kind of uh, shows itself in many different ways. I believed my car would get me here all the way from Brighton this morning. I believed that. I believed it would start. I believed that. You did too. Uh, that's why you, you probably didn't even think that you believed it, but you did, and you're here. Um, I believe the Lions next year aren't going to wait seven games to actually start winning. Uh, I, I, I think they're going to go like right off the bat. They're going to win. That's my belief. Every year, I believe. Every, every, every year. Every, every year. Um, every fall, many of you... You believe that you're going to get a deer. So that drives you to wake up so early and climb a tree and sit in the cold just waiting. It's belief that gets you there and belief 
that sustains you, that you will hear the rustle of leaves and see the, whole, like the, the, the buck you've been waiting for. It's just belief. It drives you to do certain things. Tom Brady, uh, arguably one of the best quarterbacks to play the game of football, he just retired for the second time, and he uh, said, this is it, this is it. How many of you, by raising hands, believe that he's done? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I probably am not going to, I'm halfway, I'm like, I think he might come back, actually, for a second time. Um, but belief, it's a powerful, a powerful force in our lives. It leads us to things. And like I said, there is much to talk about, but we're going to hone in on one area. Today, I want to talk about three realities of our lives that lead to belief, some sort of belief, and that lead to some sort of action. And we're going to pull it from the scripture that we're reading. Matthew 9, verse 27 through 34. It'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bibles, but if you have your Bibles, I always prefer that because if you've got a pen and your Bible, you can like circle things that interest you and be like, oh, I've got to look that up later. Um, it's just more fun that way. But if you don't, it's all good on the screens. Verse 27 says this, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons." A little context, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 all record a condensed version of a lot of Jesus' teaching. And Matthew, the author, really wanted to point out that Jesus has the authority to teach when he wrote chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapters 8 and 9, Matthew turns a corner in his writing and he starts recording every healing and miracle that he possibly can. If you read chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, you will find healing after healing after healing after, like miracle after miracle after miracle. It's just packed in there in these two chapters. And so if Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Matthew wanted to show that Jesus has the authority to teach, 8 and 9, Matthew clearly wanted to show that Jesus has the authority to heal. And so we see these two guys get healing at the same time. It reminds me, uh, of the commercial. Do you remember commercials? Do you know what those are? <laughs> it reminds me of the commercial double mint, uh, uh, of Double Mint Gum. Double the freshness, double the fun. Uh, Jesus probably had that in mind when he did this. Just kidding, he did not. Um, but he healed two people at the same time. And these two guys are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me! And Jesus is going somewhere. Side note, I love how interruptible Jesus is. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the Gospels. Jesus could be going somewhere, and he gets interrupted. He, he's on the way to heal uh, Centurion's daughter who had just died. He's going to raise her to life. And yet a woman who needed healing interrupts him. And he doesn't say, uh, excuse me, I'm on my way to do something really awesome. He, like, stops, and he engages with her, calls her daughter. And that's such a cool moment. You could tell a lot about someone 
based on how they are with interruptions. And I think Jesus is a great example. That's the side note. So these two guys are yelling, son of David, have mercy on me. And that title, son of David, is is interesting because it's the first time Matthew records this title. And it's a messianic title, meaning that the fact that they are saying this means they believe Jesus is who he says he is. They, They believe he's the son of God. They believe he's the Messiah to come to rescue Israel. And so they shout this messianic title to get his attention. They believed the scripture in Isaiah. The scripture says in Isaiah 29, 18, and that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. So they probably knew that scripture and they probably heard of the miracles of Jesus and they were like, this is happening. It's our chance. And so they're screaming out of desperation for Jesus to come and heal them. I mean, put yourselves in their shoes. To be a first century blind person is, was, was likely no easy task. They don't have modern medicine. They don't have the technology to figure out what caused the blindness. It could have been a number of things. And we actually don't know what caused these two guys to be blind. But if they didn't have family to support them, and maybe sometimes even if they did, they were left on the street begging. And so they were desperate for Jesus. They had heard of the miracles, likely, and they wanted the same thing. They knew Isaiah 29. They said, okay, if this guy truly is the son of David, my eyes can open. The sight will be given to the blind. And so they're crying out. They're incredibly, incredibly desperate. And that's the first reality that we see in this text. The desperation that leads to belief. I don't know if you've ever been desperate before. Maybe you're thinking of the time where you just, you had no other option. All your options were off the table and you were just desperate for something, desperate for God to come through, desperate for something to come through, desperate. I remember my first marathon was in 2012, 11 years ago, Chicago Marathon. I had everything planned out. I was like, this is going to be great. I trained. I had, like, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to finish in under four hours. This is the pace I need. I had, like, a fake tattoo right here with the times I needed to cross each mile. I was so prepared. I had the gel packs that uh, were designated like, okay, at mile you know, five, I'm going to take a gel pack. At mile eight, and then 11, and then 15, and then 18. So like, I, I just all planned out. And then I started running. <laughs> so by mile, pretty sure it was like 11, I had eaten all my gels. And I, <laughs> for mile 18, gone, because I just was so hungry. And all the water stations I had planned to run by, I was stopping. I'm like, water. It, it was as if Jesus himself was saying, come, drink water. And I was like, I will, I will. I just need it. My body was so desperate that, like, for like, that race, it needed nutrition. Have you ever been that desperate for something to happen or for God to come through in a situation. Maybe it was a financial situation and something hit you that you're like, I have no idea, no idea how we're going to pay for that. And you just needed something to happen and you were in a desperate situation. That's where these guys were. They were desperate for something to happen and it led to their belief. The desperation that leads to belief. Our culture does not lend itself to being desperate. 
I don't know if you've noticed this. Maybe you live this, like, we, like I live this. We love to have everything figured out. And don't get me wrong, planning is a really good thing. Being good stewards of our time and money, it's all really good. Proverbs talks a lot about that. But in our culture in today, we don't like to be dependent on anybody. We love to have it all figured out. And so this whole idea of being desperate is foreign to us. We love to be fully in control. The only issue with that is it's anti-gospel. Because the, the whole gospel of Jesus is we're not in control. We actually can't do it on our own. We are desperate people, and we needed a Savior to save us. That's the gospel. And yet we, stri- like we strive and we lead through life, we go through life, and we really don't like being desperate. The Apostle Paul understood this. He was desperate for something to be removed from his life. He called it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. He doesn't explain to us. But he does write this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We don't know what it was. Uh, Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, and persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some people, uh, by memory, they just default to memorize that, but they mix the words. They say, when I'm weak, God is strong. No, God's always strong. It doesn't take your weakness to do that. But when we are weak, that's when we are strong. When we embrace the weaknesses that we have, because we all have them. When we embrace the desperation of our lives, that's when, as Scripture says, that's when we're the strongest. When we delight in what makes us depend on God, that's where we find our strength. And that's so countercultural to where we live. Culture would say, can I change that verse just real quick? When I am strong, then I am strong. That makes sense. Ah, I'll live by that version. I like that better. But the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, says, no, no. Let's delight in our desperation, our collective desperation. And let's delight in the strength that it gives us. Because it's only then do we realize our need for God. So the action step I want to give for this reality. So the reality is the desperation that leads to belief. The action step that I want you to take this week is this. Trade self-sufficiency for Jesus-centered desperation. Trade self-sufficiency. Trade that thing you're holding on to so tightly. Trade that for Jesus-centered desperation. Ask yourself, where am I taking control where I shouldn't? Let's read on. We're going to continue by reading this again. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they listened just about as well as my four-year-old listened to when I tell him to clean up his Hot Wheel cars. Not at all. Um, But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Do you see what happens next? So they, they get healed, 
because of the power of Jesus. Their faith and belief has a part, but it is the power of God that heals them. And Jesus sternly warns them to keep their mouths shut. Can you imagine? Have you ever stopped and and wondered why Jesus would say this? This isn't the only time he says this. Because, again, you put this in the category of countercultural. Because today, my hunch is that if Jesus were around doing miracles in person, we would be like, okay, yeah, let's get your own Instagram account. Let's make you a TikTok. Let's put billboards up on 96 and 94. Let's just make this thing happen. We're going viral. We want you to be famous. That, that, I mean, let's be honest, like, that's what we do. We, like, we make people who are like, oh, yeah, that's, that's special. Yeah, you need to be in front of crowds. Uh, that, that's not what Jesus says. And I think there are a couple practical reasons. Number one, I think travel in that region, in that area, in that time period was really hard. And so to travel around first century roads when you're really, really, quote, famous and people want your time would have been really difficult. So Jesus is like, hey, I've got places to go and towns to go to. The bigger the crowd, the harder it is to travel. That's not in the text. That just makes sense to me. The second reason probably is more likely is Jesus wanted to do the will of his father. And the, the will of his father for his life was to glorify God by dying on the cross and raising again on the third day to complete the work of God, to redeem humanity. And he knew that the more his fame spread, the more it would upset the authorities. And the more upset the authorities would be, the quicker he would go to the cross. And he's like, it's not time yet, so please don't say anything. But the guys did not listen. They literally like, guess what? Like they literally did not listen to Jesus. I mean, would you? No. I mean, maybe. I wouldn't. But like if I was blind and then all of a sudden I was healed and I could see, like, I, like it would be a post. I'd make a TikTok and be like, that tree is green. Like, like everything would be, everything would be out front. I would talk about it. I I mean, I think you would too. It's just the natural reaction uh, to something incredibly special happening. And that's the second reality of of our time together, the declaration that comes from being made new. Declaration is an overflow of being made new. It's just, it's what happens. We just tell people, hey, this is what Jesus has done in my life. Declaration that comes from being made new. Jesus told these two guys, hey, don't say a word. Jesus is not telling us, don't say a word. He's actually telling us the opposite. Because Jesus, his mission was fulfilled. He died on the cross. He resurrected the third day. He ascended to heaven, and he sits on the throne. And so he gives us, in Matthew 28, the mission to go and declare to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commandments and everything I've told you to do. And I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That's our command. That's our mission. He doesn't say, shh, don't tell anyone. He says the opposite to us because his mission has been complete and he's handed it off to you and I. If you're a Jesus follower, um, that's your mission. If you're not a Jesus follower, that's our mission as Jesus followers. We are commanded to do this. We are commanded and with help. We have help. The Holy Spirit helps us. 
we all have a story to tell. It's interesting. Um, I'm a youth pastor. I've been a youth pastor for a long time, and I've worked with middle school and high school students primarily. And uh, inevitably, when I'm talking to them about their faith story, they'll say, well, I just don't have a great story. I I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were Christians. It's not like I did drugs at five years old. I just don't have that story of being saved from something horrendous or hideous or uh, like vulgar or anything like that. It's just not my story. And so I just... I don't know what to talk about. And I get that to some extent, but I want to smack them and say, I don't smack them, by the way. I want, but I, just for clarity's sake, I do not hit them. But I want to like be like, come on, like, what are you doing? You have a story. Like, before Jesus is a reality for every single one of us. And then meeting Jesus is a reality for those of you who have met Jesus. And then post-Jesus, like what Jesus is doing in our lives, that's a story worth telling. Paul says in Ephesians, he says it this way. He's talking to the church in Ephesus, but it applies to us, and it applies to every Jesus follower. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And and he means spiritually dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is the story of every follower of Jesus, no matter what. No matter when you accepted Jesus, no matter when you trusted him for your salvation, this is your story. You were spiritually dead. You were unable to please God at all. But then Jesus saved you, and now you are connected to the God who created you and everything else you see. It's incredible. You have a story. You were one way, and now you are completely different. And what happened in between is Jesus Christ. That's your story. And so you have a story to tell. I love what Paul says here, but a lot of scripture actually uses spiritual death as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. And what's interesting, we're going to see at the end, um, but like the, the two guys who got healed were healed of physical blindness, but the Pharisees, they could not see the glory of God. Even though they could physically see with their eyes, they were still spiritually blind. But every one of us has this story of our lives. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually blind. And Jesus has literally caused us to see. If you're in Christ, then you have that story. It's incredible. It's incredible. This is difficult for me. This is difficult for me. Because declaring takes work. Declaring takes courage. And I'm so, it's just so easy for me to be comfortable But here's the action step with this declaration, with this reality of our lives. Find one person to share your story with this week. Find one person to share your story with this week. It could be your kid that you've not yet told really how you came to know Jesus. They're a teenager now, and they, like, we do, like, as a family, you do the church thing, but you've never really sat down and said, hey, have I told you how I 
began to follow Jesus? Or maybe for you, it's a close friend that they know you went through a hard time, but you've not really been honest with them about how you really came through that hard time and how God pulled you through. And you're just going to be honest with your story and say, look, I just got to tell you, it was Jesus. Jesus was the strength I had that pulled me through. And maybe you've not been honest with that yet. And today, this week, maybe that's your action step, is to share your story with someone. It's to be open. We are not told to shh. We are told to tell. We are told to tell the world. First Peter actually tells us to be ready with a response. It's incredible. Uh, let's read on. Let's finish the story. Verse 32 of Matthew chapter 9. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. So now the two, got, the, the, the two blind guys could see, and now we have a demon-possessed guy who couldn't talk, all of a sudden talking. And the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, here's that, here's that verse I was telling you about, but the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They couldn't see it. They were still spiritually blind to this. They were the religious elite, and yet they did not know what God was doing. But picture the end of this. They, were, they had just witnessed, the crowd had just witnessed two guys um, receive sight, and then all of a sudden this other guy comes into the picture, and you're like, whoa, where did he come from? It's like watching a movie, and this character just shows up, and he's demon-possessed, and he can't talk. And Jesus heals the guy, and we don't know how he heals him. Matthew does not give us any details. It's as if Matthew just like squeezes this miracle in just because there were too many to write about. He's like, oh yeah, there's that one demon-possessed guy, and he couldn't talk, and Jesus just, he's healed now, so let's just move on. You know, it's like Matthew didn't want to give us any details, and yet this guy could not talk. He encounters Jesus, the demon's driven out, and he is talking again. And it's so interesting because the crowd was amazed, as probably we would be too. Uh, I mean, they, they downright probably started to worship him like, hey, you, I think you are who you say you are. You are the son of David. You are the Messiah to come. And yet the Pharisees, they could not bring themselves to notice Jesus. The crowd was amazed and the Pharisees were mad. That was pretty par for the course as we read in the Gospels. But there's a deeper reality here. There's a deeper reality going on because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, his whole goal, Matthew's goal, was to display that Jesus has the authority to make all things new, all thi like whether you can't walk, talk, or see, he can make all things new again. But that included being over the evil forces of the world. And this is our third reality the decisive power that conquers evil. We see this in the text. The decisive power that conquers evil. One thing that Jesus made very clear with each healing is that he has the authority to heal. And this is the exact same. He has the authority to conquer evil. There's a book called Live No Lies. I, it's a great book. I would recommend it. It's by John Mark Comer. He's a great author. The uh, pastor out in the north 
the northwest of the, the United States in, in Portland. And this book really is about the enemies of our soul, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And if that doesn't intrigue you enough, I would really encourage you to go get this book. The World, the Flesh, the Devil, the Three Enemies of Our Soul. And he explains the biblical evidence and support for how we should interact with our enemy, the devil. And I think the devil and spiritual warfare fit in two categories in our culture today in America. One is like you are, like you over care about it to the point of like kind of unhealth. And you're like, you're fixated on it. But the other extreme is you don't care enough. Like, it doesn't exist in your mind. Like, there's no Satan. There's no devil. Like, it's just over. But Jesus talked about an enemy. He talked about the devil. And he talked about his power over the devil. And I heard a talk once from a pastor who's a friend. And he gave a great talk about the enemy, or Satan, and the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. And all the devil can do now and then is steal points from the winning team. It's not like he's trying to win the war. Jesus has conquered death and conquered evil. Evil will one day be gone. So it's not like Satan is trying to win. He's just trying to steal points from the winning team. And Jesus knows that, and he has decisive power over the devil. And it's interesting Pharisees' response. They're like, uh, yeah, I think it's because you're, you're possessed with a demon. Yeah, yeah, that must be it. You're possessed with a demon that you're driving out demons. And they couldn't figure out how Jesus was doing this. Maybe they just didn't want to see that he was indeed the king bringing a kingdom. Matthew chapter 12, so just a few chapters to the right of where we're at. Matthew 12 records another healing of a demon-possessed man. Let's look at the Pharisees' response here. It's a bit more robust than in Matthew 9. So let's read that now. Matthew 12, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, so same deal, and said, hey, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, again, par for the course, they said, hey, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, hey, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. In every city or household divided against itself, it won't stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, so then they will be your judges. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That was the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. I'm bringing a kingdom, a different way of life, a different order of living, a different rule to live under. I'm bringing a kingdom to this earth. That was John the baptizer's whole task. Prepare the way for the Messiah. Prepare the way the kingdom is coming. This whole language of a kingdom, kingdom. Well, kingdoms, they have a king. And Jesus, by by conquering evil, was declaring decidedly that he was the king. He was the king of this new kingdom that he is bringing. And so the action step for this reality, the reality is the decisive power that conquers evil. The action step for you and I is to dethrone all else and embrace Jesus as king. 
to dethrone all else and embrace Jesus as king. This is likely going to be the hardest one for you to think through, to process, and to even do. Uh, it, very difficult for me, because what this reveals for me and, and for you, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> what this reveals is the things that we are taking control of. Could you give me my coffee? There, there, there's like something right there. <clears throat> <clears throat> I want you to think about, oh, so good. I want you to think about an area of your life where you have not given over to the loving rule of God, to the king, to the king Jesus, where he wants to have rule over your life. I want you to think about an area where you're holding tightly to it. Could be your sexual integrity. It could be your finances. It could be your relationships. It could be a number of things. What area of your life are you just holding on and saying, Jesus, you can have everything else. I think I'm just going to take control of this. And maybe you don't say that in those uncertain terms, but the way you live your life, you've just not given that over to Jesus as king. And that's a shift seeing Jesus as king. Because he's our friend. He says it in the Gospels. He's our savior. He has saved us and redeemed us. He's our Lord. But the term king just hits differently, doesn't it? Because when there's a king, well, you do what the king says. And it, when there's a king, you, you, you follow the king. You, you obey the orders. You obey the commandments of the king because he's king. And Jesus... And Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 has shown himself to be king of the teaching. He, is, he has the authority to teach. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, it's very clear he is king over everything. He can make all things new. He can heal the blind. He can cast out demons. He can make people walk. He can raise people from the dead. He is king. He's got decisive power over everything. And so this action step is hard, to dethrone all else and embrace Jesus as king. Is there any area of your life that you haven't given over to Jesus as king? The answer is likely yes. Because when I ask that to myself, the answer is always yes. And so chances are good we're in the same boat. And chances are good this week would be a really great week for you to begin to talk to Jesus about, okay, what area do I need to let go of? I actually want to end with three questions to help you this week as you talk to Jesus about this um, Jesus asked the two guys, do you believe that I can do this? And they said, yes. Then he made them see. And so the questions are center around belief. Does your belief in Jesus, is your belief based in a desperate plea for Jesus to move in your life? That's the first question. If you have your phones, maybe just snap a picture of these. Or if you're a quick writer, write these down because you're going to want to come back to these. Is your belief based in a desperate plea for Jesus to move in your life? That's number one. Number two, does your belief move you to declare the good works of God? Does your belief move you to declare the good works of God? And number three, have you allowed Jesus to have full reign 
over all areas of your life? Have you allowed Jesus to have full reign over all areas of your life? We're talking full reign. What you post on social media, how you talk to your friends, how you talk to your parents, how you talk about your spouse, like full reign. Full reign. Is Jesus your true king? And does he have access to every area of life? So those are the three questions. I I can guarantee you, if you take time this week, carve out space, meet with Jesus, and if you go through these three questions with him with an open heart and an open hand and say, I don't want any control, Jesus, show me where I am holding on, where I have not let you in, by the end of this week, you will be closer to Jesus than you are today because Jesus desires your heart. And if you've been wanting to grow spiritually, this is how it's done. If you've been wanting to grow spiritually, processing these questions with Jesus himself is how it's done. He wants you, not what you can do for him. By the way, these things don't save us. Jesus already made a way for us to be saved, and it was based only on the work that he did, proving even more so that he's king. And so when we come to him, it's not out of like, okay, will this please you more? Am I in good graces more than I was yesterday because I'm doing my morning devo time? No, no, it's not about that. Jesus already did the work for you to be saved. But he desires your heart. And so when you do this, by next Sunday, you will be closer to Jesus. Let's pray. And let's ask God for boldness and courage as we, as we enter this week. Jesus, we ask for just that, boldness and courage, to go through these questions and to honestly look at our lives and to, to, to honestly search our hearts with your help. So God, give us boldness and courage to do this. Help us trust you more and more with our heart and with our lives. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be here with you. Always a pleasure. Have a great rest of your Sunday. You are dismissed.